Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 11 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Margaret of Anjou, Chapter 1, Part 1 The history of Margaret of Anjou, from the cradle to the grave, is a tissue of the most striking vicissitudes, and replete with events of more powerful interest than are to be found in the imaginary career of any heroine of romance. For the creations of fiction, however forcibly they may appeal to our imaginations, fade into insignificance before the simple majesty of truth. When we consider the stormy grandeur of character of this last and most luckless of our Provençal queens, her beauty, her learning, her energetic talents, and the important position she occupied for more than a quarter of a century in the annals of this country, first as the unconstitutional, but certainly supreme, director of the power of the crown, and lastly, as the leader and rallying point of the friends of Lancaster, it is remarkable that no complete and authentic memoir of this princess has ever been given to the world. René of Anjou, the father of Margaret, was the second son of Louis II, King of Sicily and Jerusalem, Duke of Calabria and Anjou, and Count of Provence, by Yolante of Aragon. In 1420, René was, in his thirteenth year, espoused to Isabella, the heiress of Lorraine, who was only ten years old at the period of her nuptials. This lady, who was the direct descendant of Charlemagne, in addition to her princely patrimony, brought the beauty, the high spirit, and the imperial blood of that illustrious line into the family of Anjou. Her youngest daughter, Margaret, was in all respects a genuine scion of the Carlovingian race. She also inherited her father's love of learning and his taste for poetry and the arts. Some of the English historians, including Monstrelet, place the date of Margaret's birth in 1425, but this is a palpable error, for her mother, who was scarcely fifteen at that time, did not give birth to her eldest child, John of Calabria, till the following year. Then came Prince Louis, followed by Nicholas and Yolante, twin children, who were born October 2nd, 1428. After the decease of René and his sons, Yolante took the title of Queen of Sicily as the next heir. And this circumstance, together with her marriage settlements, sufficiently attests the fact that she was the elder sister of our Margaret, since the dates of the birth of children, having claims to a disputed succession, are generally strictly authenticated by the records of their own country. Thus we see that Margaret of Anjou was four years younger than has been generally supposed. According to the best authorities, Margaret was born March 23, 1429, at Pointe-à-Mousson, her mother's dower palace, 
one of the grandest castles in Lorraine. She was baptized under the great crucifix in the cathedral of Toul by the bishop of that diocese. Her sponsors were her uncle, Louis III, King of Naples, and Marguerite, Duchess of Lorraine, her maternal grandmother. Margaret was yet in the arms of her father's faithful nurse, Theophany, by whom she was reared, when the fierce contest for the succession of Lorraine commenced, between her father and her mother's uncle, Anthony of Vaudemonte, on the death of her grandfather Charles, Duke of Lorraine. She had scarcely completed her second year, when her royal sire was defeated and made prisoner by his adversary, at the Battle of Bonneville. We learn from the chronicles of Lorraine, that the infant princess Margaret, was her mother's companion, during the agonizing hours of suspense, in which she remained at Nancy, awaiting tidings of the issue of that disastrous fight. The event was soon announced, by the arrival of the fugitives from the lost battle. Alas, cried the duchess, clasping her little Margaret to her bosom, where is René, my lord? He is taken, he is slain. Madam, they said, be not thus abandoned to grief. The duke is in good health, though disabled, and prisoner to the Burgundians. But the duchess was inconsolable. The council of Lorraine regarded her with the deepest sympathy, for she was left with four helpless children, two boys and two girls, the most beautiful ever seen. While the duchess Marguerite, her mother, rallied the dispirited friends of René for the defense of Nancy, Isabel, the tenderest and most courageous of conjugal heroines, sought an interview with her hostile kinsman, in the hope of obtaining the release of her captive lord, and a cessation from the horrors of civil strife. Moved by her pathetic eloquence, Antoine granted a truce of six months, dated August 1st, 1431. Her supplications in behalf of René were fruitless, for he had been already given up to the Duke of Burgundy, by whom he was consigned to a long imprisonment at Dijon, at the top of a high tower, still in existence. The only condition on which the sire of Margaret could obtain even a temporary release from his thraldom, was at the price of bestowing his eldest daughter, Yolante, then in her ninth year, on the heir of his rival, the young fairy or Frederick of Vaudemont, with part of the disputed lands of Lorraine for her portion. The little Margaret was at the same time betrothed to Pierre of Luxembourg, Count of Saint-Paul, whose squire had cut down René at the Battle of Bonneville. René, being pledged to pay a heavy sum of money to the Duke of Burgundy for his ransom, was obliged to give his two boys as his hostages, and to resign Yolante to her new mother-in-law, so that of their four beautiful children, the infant Margaret was the only one who returned to Nancy with her parents. Such a meeting and such a parting as that of René with his family was never before witnessed, and the petite creature, Margaret, as she is called by the chroniclers of Lorraine, is said to have testified the utmost sensibility on this occasion. The death of the virtuous Margaret of Bavaria, the grandmother of this princess, at the close of the year 1434, increased the affliction of her family, but a heavier trial awaited Margaret and her parents. King René, being unable to fulfill the conditions of his release, was compelled to deliver himself up to his captors. His imprisonment was shared by his eldest son, Jean of Calabria, but Louis was restored to the arms of his sorrowing mother and sister. 
In 1436, on the death of René's eldest brother, Louis, King of Naples, the succession of his realms devolved on the royal captive, and his faithful consort Isabel prepared to assert his rights. Among the illustrious females of the 15th century, the mother of Margaret of Anjou holds a distinguished place, alike for her commanding talents, her great personal endowments, her courage, and conjugal tenderness. It was from this illustrious parent that Margaret inherited those energies which the sternest shocks of adversity were unable to subdue. With such a mother as Isabella of Lorraine, who was the patroness of Agnes Sorel, and the contemporary of Joan of Arc, born and nurtured amidst scenes of civil warfare and domestic calamity, it is scarcely wonderful if the characteristics of Anjou's heroine partook of the temper of the times in which she was unhappily thrown. While arranging her measures for asserting by force of arms the claims of her captive lord to the disputed succession of Naples, the mother of Margaret, who had now assumed the title of Queen of the Two Sicilies, took up her abode with Margaret and Louis at the Chateau of Tarascon on the banks of the Rhone. The singular beauty and graces of these illustrious children, says the chronicler of Provence, caused them to be regarded almost in the light of angel visitants. The Provençals, whose poetic feelings were passionately excited by the advent of the consort and lovely children of their captive prince, followed them in crowds wherever they appeared, singing songs in their praise, strewing flowers at their feet, presenting them with votive wreaths, and nightly kindling bonfires before the palace, to preserve them from infection. Nostradamus adds a very marvelous story of a number of witches and evil fairies, who intruded themselves among the loyal throngs, who came to gaze on those very beautiful and excellent creatures, the Infanta Marguerite and her brother. The fearful visitation of the plague compelled the Queen of the Sicilies to hurry her precious little ones from Tarascon. They embarked with her at Marseilles for Naples, where, however, the pestilence from which they had fled at Provence was raging. The royal strangers took up their abode at Capua, the ancient palace of the family of Anjou in Naples. Queen Isabel caused her captive husband to be proclaimed as king of the two Sicilies, at which ceremony the young Margaret and her brother were seated by their royal mother in the triumphal seat of state, covered with velvet and embroidered with gold, in which this conjugal heroine was born through the streets of Naples. René was chiefly indebted for his deliverance from bondage to the exertions of his faithful consort. In the treaty for his liberation, the following remarkable article was proposed by the Duke of Burgundy, which affords an indication that the English alliance was contemplated as early as 1435 to 1436. And to cement the peace between the two powers, Margaret of Anjou, second daughter to the King René, shall espouse the young King of England. This was nine years before the marriage took place, the bride being but six years old. It appears a mere suggestion on the side of Burgundy, without any sanction of the English, and was opposed by Charles the Seventh. Margaret of Anjou remained at the Capua Palace, with her heroic mother, till the year 1438, when René, having obtained his freedom, made his entry into Naples with a Provençal army, mounted on a stately white charger. After tenderly embracing Margaret and her mother, he transferred their abode to the elegant palace, finished with the utmost profusion of luxury, 
by his voluptuous predecessor, Joanna II. Here, in the soft air of Italy, our young Margaret of Anjou proceeded in her education under the care of her mother, and her brother's learned tutor, Antoine de Salle, author of some of the earliest romances of French literature, which, it is said, he wrote for the amusement of Margaret's brother, because, says Antoine in his dedication, you were always very fond, my prince, of hearing me tell you little tales. This literary education, in the sweet and voluptuous clime of Naples, was by no means a suitable preparation for Margaret's English destination, for there could be few ideas in common between her and a rude people who had retrograded from the civilization they had attained under the Provencal alliances of England. In the year 1443, Margaret returned to Lorraine with her royal mother, having first experienced the grief of losing her brother, Prince Louis, with whom she had been educated. Previous to that event, the contract of marriage with the Count de St. Paul, having been broken off, her hand was sought by the Count de Nevers, nephew to the Duke of Burgundy, and matters were so far advanced that a day was appointed for the articles to be signed. But when it was discovered that a clause had been inserted, disinheriting the children that might be born of her elder sister Yolante and fairy of Vadamonte, Charles the Seventh, whose consort, Mary of Anjou, was aunt to both princesses, would not permit the alliance to take place on such conditions. The proposals of the Count St. Paul were renewed after the death of Prince Louis, but Nostradamus thinks the idea of the more splendid alliance with the King of England prevented them from being accepted. Meantime, the territories of Anjou and Maine, King René's patrimony, inherited as the appanage of his ancestor, Charles of Anjou, younger brother of St. Louis, were occupied by the troops of England, so that he could scarcely be said to possess a single undisputed town or castle, and his family and himself were reduced to a state of penury, which their illustrious descent and lofty titles only rendered the more conspicuous. But however painfully these adversities might be felt by his consort and children, René regarded the frowns of fortune with philosophical indifference, and retiring into Provence, occupied himself with writing verses and composing music, for which he possessed no ordinary talents. Scarcely had Margaret of Anjou entered her teens, when her precocious charms and talents created the most lively sensations at the court of her aunt, the Queen of France. There was no princess in Christendom, says Barante, more accomplished than my Lady Marguerite of Anjou. She was already renowned in France for her beauty and wit, and all the misfortunes of her father had only given her an opportunity of displaying her lofty spirit and courage. The report of these charms, according to another learned but somewhat imaginative French author, first reached Henry the Sixth, the young bachelor king of England, through the medium of a gentleman of Anjou, named Champchevier, a prisoner at large, belonging to Sir John Halstoff, with whom King Henry was accustomed to converse occasionally, and he gave so eloquent a description of the rare endowments which nature had bestowed on the portionless daughter of the impoverished king of the two Sicilies, that Henry dispatched him to the court of Lorraine, to procure a portrait of the young princess. This statement is quite consistent with Henry's proceedings, in regard to the preliminaries for his alliance with a daughter of the Count of Armagnac, for we find, by the curious correspondence between the two courts, that a painter named Hans, 
was employed by the youthful monarch to paint the portraits of the three daughters of that prince for his satisfaction henry was very explicit in his directions that the likenesses should be perfect requiring that the young ladies should be painted in their kirtles simple and their visages like as ye see and their stature and their beauty the color of their skin and their countenances the commissioners were to urge the artist to use great expedition and to send the picture or image over to the king as quickly as possible that he might make his choice between the three Champchevier, more successful in his mission than the reverend plentipotinaries who had endeavored to negotiate the matrimonial treaty with the court of armagnac obtained a portrait of margaret painted by one of the first artists in france who was employed our author adds by the earl of suffolk this is not unlikely for suffolk was the ostensible instrument in this marriage but the real person with whom the project for a union between henry the sixth and margaret of anjou originated appears to have been no other than cardinal beaufort the great uncle of the king the education of henry the sixth having been superintended by the cardinal he was fully aware of the want of energy and decision in his character which rendered it desirable to provide him with a consort whose intellectual powers would be likely to supply his constitutional defects and whose acquirements might render her a suitable companion for so learned and refined a prince in margaret of anjou all these requisites were united with beauty eloquence and every feminine charm calculated to win unbounded influence over the plastic mind of the youthful sovereign she was moreover at that tender and unreflective age at which she might be rendered a powerful auxiliary in the cardinal's political views under these circumstances there can be little doubt that champchevier had received his cue from the cardinal when he described to henry in such glowing colors the charms and mental graces of the very princess to whom he had determined to unite him both for the reasons we have before stated and as a means of concluding a peace with france in the meantime sir john falstaff who was not in the secret being greatly enraged at the departure of his prisoner without having made any agreement for the payment of his ransom employed the duke of gloucester with whom he enjoyed some credit to write a letter to the king of france explaining the circumstance and entreating that he might be restored to him according to the laws of chivalry no prince was justified in extending his protection to a captive who had forfeited his parole of honor therefore king charles issued orders for the arrest of champchevier who was taken on his way from the court of lorraine towards england he was brought before the king of france at vincennes and fully cleared himself from all imputations on his honor by producing a safe conduct to lorraine signed by king henry and explaining the nature of the mission on which he had been employed by his captor sovereign charles the seventh was highly amused at the information thus obtained from his nephew's love affairs and being struck with the great advantages that might result to himself and his harassed kingdom if an alliance were actually to be formed between henry and his fair kinswoman he released champchevier and enjoined him to return to the court of england without delay and make use of every representation in his power to incline king henry to choose the lady margaret for his queen 
the reappearance of Champchevier at Windsor, and his frequent conferences with the king caused, it is added, suspicions to the nature of the business on which he had been employed, in the mind of the Duke of Gloucester, who kept up a jealous espionage on the actions of his royal nephew. These suspicions were confirmed when King Henry undertook himself to satisfy Sir John Falstaff for the ransom of his prisoner, and dispatched him a second time on a secret mission to the court of Lorraine. Henry the Sixth was then in his four-and-twentieth year, beautiful in person, of a highly cultivated and refined mind, holy and pure in thought and deed, resisting with virtuous indignation every attempt that had been made by the unprincipled females of his court, to entangle him in the snares of illicit passion, yet pining for the sweet ties of conjugal love and sympathy. The loneliness of his condition, and his earnest desire to live under the holy sacrament of marriage, are pathetically set forth by the bachelor monarch, in his curious instructions to the commissioners empowered by him, two years before, to conduct the negotiations between him and the court of Armagnac. The choice of a consort for the young king was the deciding contest for political mastery between those fierce rival kinsmen, the Duke of Gloucester and Cardinal Beaufort. Gloucester's favorite project of uniting his royal nephew with the princess of the house of Armagnac was rendered abortive by Henry's determination not to commit himself in any way till he had seen the portraits of the ladies. And while the Count of Armagnac, who was playing a double game with the court of France, delayed the artist's progress for diplomatic reasons, the lively transcript of the charms of his lovely kinswoman, Margaret of Anjou, made an indelible impression on the heart of the youthful monarch, and he resolved to obtain her hand at any sacrifice. The sacrifice was, after all, much less than has been represented, and Henry the Sixth, in his ardent desire to give peace to his exhausted realm, proved himself a more enlightened ruler than his renowned sire, who had deluged the continent with blood, and rendered the crown bankrupt, in the vain attempt to unite England and France. The national pride of the English prompted them to desire a continuance of the contest, but it was a contest no less ruinous now to England than to France, and Cardinal Beaufort, with the other members of Henry's cabinet, being destitute of the means of maintaining the war, were only too happy to enter into amicable negotiations with France, on the grounds of a matrimonial alliance between King Henry and Margaret of Anjou, who, through her grandmother, Margaret of Bavaria, was nearly related both to Charles the Seventh and to Henry. In January 1444, the commissioners of England, France, and Burgundy were appointed to meet at Tours, to negotiate a truce with France, preparatory to a peace, the basis and cement of which were to be the marriage of the young king of England with the beautiful niece of the queen of France. Many historians are of opinion that the matrimonial treaty, with all its startling articles, had been privately settled between the courts of England, France, and Lorraine, before the publication of the commission for negotiating the truce. Suffolk, who was appointed the ambassador extraordinary on this occasion, was so much alarmed at the responsibility he was likely to incur, that he actually presented a petition to the king, praying to be excused from the office that had been put upon him. Nor could he be prevailed upon to undertake it, till he was secured from personal peril, by an order from the king under the great seal, and joining him to undertake, without fear or scruple, the commission which had been given him. 
thus assured suffolk was in an evil hour for himself and all parties concerned persuaded to stand in the gap by becoming the procurator of the most unpopular peace and fatal marriage that were ever negotiated by a prime minister of england as a preliminary a truce for two years was signed may twenty eighth fourteen forty four neither money nor lands were demanded for the dowry of the bride whose charms and high endowments were allowed by the gallant ambassadors of england to outweigh all the riches in the world when the proposal was made in form to the father of the young margaret he replied in the spirit of a knight-errant that it would be inconsistent with his honour to bestow his daughter in marriage on the usurper of his hereditary dominions anjou and maine and he demanded the restoration of these provinces as an indispensable condition in the marriage articles this demand was backed by the king of france and after a little hesitation seated by king henry and his council the handsome and accomplished count de nevers who was a prince of the house of burgundy a soldier and a poet was at the same time a candidate for the hand of the royal provencal beauty to whom he was passionately attached and it is probable that the idea of this formidable rival who was on the spot withal to push his suit in person might have had some effect in influencing king henry to a decision more lover-like than politic as soon as the conditions of the marriage were settled suffolk returned to bring the subject before parliament where he had to encounter a stormy opposition from the duke of gloucester and his party who were equally hostile to a peace with france and a marriage with the daughter of the house of anjou suffolk however only acted as the agent of cardinal beaufort who possessed an ascendancy not only in the council but with the parliament and above all the inclinations of the royal bachelor being entirely on his side his triumph over gloucester was complete suffolk was dignified with the title of marquess and invested with full powers to espouse the lady margaret of anjou as the proxy of his sovereign there is in rymer's Federa a letter from the king addressed to suffolk as the grand seneschal of his household dated october twenty eighth fourteen forty four in which he says as you have lately by the divine favor and grace in our name and for us engaged verbally the excellent magnificent and very bright margaretta the serene daughter of the king of sicily and sworn that we shall contract matrimony with her we consent and will that she be conducted to us overseas from her country and friends at our expense suffolk accompanied by his lady and a splendid train of the nobility had sailed from england on this fatal mission some time before and proceeded to nancy the king queen and the dauphiness of france the dukes of bretagne and alençon and in short all the most distinguished personages of the courts of france and lorraine were there assembled to do honour to the espousals of the youthful margaret historians vary as to the time and place of this ceremonial but according to the best authorities it was solemnized in november fourteen forty four by louis de harincourt bishop of toul at nancy in st martin's church where in the presence of her illustrious parents the royal family of france and a concourse of nobles and ladies the marquess of suffolk espoused the lady margaret in the name and as the proxy of his sovereign henry the sixth of england drayton in his poetical chronicle after quaintly enumerating the rank and number of the distinguished guests at queen margaret's espousals 
thus eloquently alludes to the charms of the royal bride. Whilst that only she, like to the rosy morning towards its rise, cheers all the church as it doth cheer the skies. King René indulged his passion for pageantry and courtly games at these nuptials, to his heart's content. A tournament was proclaimed in the honor of the young queen of England, at which throngs of princely knights and gallant warriors wore garlands of daisies in the lists, out of compliment to the royal bride of fifteen, who had chosen this flower for her emblem. Among those who particularly distinguished themselves on this occasion were Charles of Anjou, the gallant uncle of the bride, and Pierre de Brise, Lord of Varennes, and Seneschal of Normandy, one of the commissioners who negotiated the marriage treaty of the beautiful Margaret, in whose service, during the melancholy period of the Wars of the Roses, he afterwards performed such romantic exploits. Charles the Seventh appeared in the lists more than once in honor of his fair kinswoman. He bore on his shield the serpent of the fairy Melusina. He tilted with the father of the royal bride, by whom, however, he was vanquished. The most distinguished renown was won by Margaret's forsaken spouse, the Count St. Paul, who received the prize from the hands of her aunt, the Queen of France, and her mother, the Queen of Sicily. It is to be observed that Suffolk took no part in the jousts or games. Such exercises were, in fact, little suited to his grave years, which greatly outnumbered those of the father of the youthful bride, notwithstanding all that poets and romancing historians have feigned, on the subject of the imaginary passion of Margaret, for the hoary proxy of her lord. The bridal festivities lasted eight days, and the spot where the tournament was held is still called, in the memory of that circumstance, the Place de Carré. All the noble ladies in Lorraine came from their Gothic castles to be present at these feats, where all the beauty and chivalry of France, and England and Burgundy, were assembled. The long-delayed marriage of Margaret's elder sister with her cousin, Fairy of Vaudemonte, was completed at the same time under the following romantic circumstances. Fairy, who was passionately enamored of his beautiful fiancée, Yolante, to whom he had been betrothed upwards of nine years, rendered desperate by the delays of her father, who never intended to allow her to fulfill her forced engagement with the son of his adversary, formed and executed a plan with a band of adventurous young chevaliers, for carrying her off, at the nuptial tournament of her younger sister Margaret. King René was very angry at first, but was induced, by the mediation of the king and queen of France, and the rest of the royal company, to forgive the gallant trespass of the long-defrauded bridegroom, and a general reconciliation took place, in which all past rancors were forgotten, and the pageants and games were renewed with fresh spirit. At the conclusion of the eight days' feat, Margaret was solemnly delivered to the Marquess and Marchioness of Suffolk, and took a mournful farewell of her weeping kindred and friends. Never, says the chroniclers of her land, a young princess more deeply loved in the bosom of her own family. Charles the Seventh of France, who was tenderly attached to the accomplished niece of his queen, accompanied her two leagues from Nancy, clasped her at parting many times in his arms, and said, with his eyes full of tears, I seem to have done nothing for you, my niece, in placing you on one of the greatest thrones in Europe, for it is scarcely worthy of possessing you. Sobs stifled his voice. The young queen could only reply with a torrent of tears. They parted, and saw each other no more. Charles returned to Nancy, with his eyes swollen with weeping. 
a harder parting took place with her father who went with her as far as bar there he commended her to god but neither the father nor the daughter could speak to each other but turned away with full hearts without uttering a single word these regrets in which persons who were by the etiquettes and restraints of royalty taught to conceal every emotion of the heart so passionately indulged on this occasion are sufficient evidence of the amiable and endearing qualities of the youthful margaret or her loss would not have been so deeply lamented when she was departing from a precarious and care-clouded house to fulfil a destiny whose perspective was at that time brilliant margaret's eldest brother john duke of calabria and the duke of alenon attended her on her route but she travelled with her own train as queen of england under the protection of the marquess of suffolk and his wife this lady who was the granddaughter and heiress of geoffrey chaucer the father of english poetry was also first cousin to cardinal beaufort and was doubtless on that account selected by him as the chaperone or state governess of the virgin bride of henry the sixth it was probably through the influence of the marchioness of suffolk that the young queen formed that inviolable bond of friendship with all the princes of the house of beaufort which afterwards involved her in such great unpopularity the countess of shrewsbury and the lady emma de scales were also in the personal retinue of the young queen there were besides five barons and baronesses in attendance on her who were paid for their services four shillings sixpence per day seventeen knights including her two carvers at two shillings sixpence per day brecknock the clerk of her comptroller's wages and those of his coadjunctor john everden were equal to those of the knights sixty-five squires received each one shilling sixpence per day a hundred and seventy-four valets at sixpence per day nineteen palfreymen and sumptermen fourpence per day and in addition to those who received wages many persons were attached to the suite who served gratuitously in anticipation of margaret's arrival king henry wrote a quaint and earnest letter to the goldsmith's company entreating them to do their devure at the coming of his entirely well-beloved wife the queen whom he expected through god's grace to have with him in right brief time this letter is dated november thirtieth fourteen forty four but the advent of the royal bride was delayed nearly four months we are indebted to the brecknock computus for the following diary of the last three weeks of margaret's journey to england pontoise march eighteenth this day the lady margaret the queen came with her family to supper at the expense of our lord the king cost twelve pounds eleven shillings one pence friday nineteenth the queen went to sup with the duke of york at mons cost five pounds five shillings one pence saturday twentieth to dine with the duke of york at the same place cost four pounds seven shillings five and a half pence end of section eleven Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.